Well, thank you, Kevin, uh, very much. I hope that you got a little bit of a peek into what happens when our team here goes to the Dominican. Uh, our family's had a chance to do that for multiple years, um, and we've been sponsoring a young girl named Audrey Alley for a couple years, and it's been a real gift to us. Um, one of the things I love about Grace Point is that the missions team has designed mission trips to be family-friendly. So our hope is the next generation, as they grow up, they just assume, <laughs> they just assume through experience that being involved in the global mission of God is normal. This is what we do. Our vision, that's it. I mean, that just, it's like breathing. And so I love that teams like this um, can have families and children of most all ages, almost all have been on, on these teams. So think about that too, if you're a family member. All right. All right. With that being said, welcome back. Did I say who I am? Did I introduce myself? I don't know. Some of you know me, many of you do. Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Good to have you guys with us. Um, uh, we're in a series called The Secret of Being Content because Paul, an early follower of Jesus, when he wrote this letter that we're in um, to the Philippian church, he wrote at the end that he's learned the secret of being content. And I think that everything at the beginning of the letter leads up to that point. And so we're building this series off of that. Now, with that being said, I want to share this. Uh, just a couple years ago, someone in our community invited me to attend a meeting uh, in this area with a number of influential uh, community leaders. I had not been to this meeting, this kind of meeting before, um, but I was always kind of curious what it might be like. And when I got there, um, there were definitely a lot of, you can call it movers and shakers in the room, a lot of people dressed up in suits and ties and uh, formal dress, um, a couple different superintendents in the room, a couple different CEOs in the room. Uh, we had lawyers, retired lawyers, senior partners of firms in the room. So fairly, like, whatever, you know, kind of, you know, anyway, more formal environment, all right? Um, and it was great. A lot of people who are making decisions and, and influencing business and education leaders in our community. And so we sit around a, a large table at a local restaurant, and the guy up front who's in charge, he hits his gavel on the table. I'm like, oh, this is definitely a formal thing. Boom, gavel to draw it to order. Um, and I'm just kind of like, ooh, what's this going to be like? And I'm the, the new guy. And, and he's like, all rise. We all rise. And he's like, let's get your songbook and let's sing. I've been working on the railroad all the live long. And seriously, we break out into I've been working on the railroad. And I'm like, what is happening? What in the world is happening? Now, I still love that group, by the way. I'm not a part of it, but I love that group. And I came to realize this, that behavior, <laughs> behavior um, can change a room in a hurry, all right? It can change a room in a hurry. I was not expecting to be singing, I've been working on the railroad with a bunch of people in suits and ties on a Thursday afternoon. It just wasn't in my mind, you know? So I don't know if you've ever experienced that reality, that you walk into a room and the behavior of the people or the moment either, either isn't what you expect or it is, and behavior can either invite you to something or it can repel you from something. You're like, what's happening in this space? Not unlike going to a junior high retreat on the second night and run into a bunch of junior hires who haven't slept for two nights or for one night and someone asks you to be a junior high leader, it's not a good time to ask people to do that because the behavior is weird. You don't know what's going on. So the same is true, the same is true, I'd argue, for Christians and how we behave in the rooms that we're in. And there are two truths that I think are true and um, competing at the same time all the time. And that is this, that, that Christian, a Christian's behavior can make a difference in the world for good. And the competing truth, I think, also lives on in the same time and space continuum. That is this, that a Christian's behavior can make a difference in the world for bad. I think both are true 
at the same time. And behavior is important. The way we function, the way we interact with our world is very important. So this morning, I want to ask the question, how can our behavior make a difference for the good? How can our behavior, the way that we interact with the people around us, make a difference for our good? The reason I'm asking this is because I think Paul is writing about this in his letter to the church in Philippi, which I invite you to turn to. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair around you. It's our gift to you if you don't own one. But we are in the little letter to Philippians. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, is where I'm starting at this morning. Uh, and we're going to read through, uh, I think it's verse 17 this morning, if I'm not mistaken. So let me begin. I'm in the NIV, near the National Version. Uh, and here we go. Paul is writing, and he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, just for some context, you probably know this. In verse 12, when the verse begins with therefore, you always ask what it's, you know, this therefore. And the therefore ties into the previous section. Last Sunday and right before this, Paul was writing a really beautiful and strong passage about Jesus and what we call his incarnation. That as God, he took on human flesh and became like us. In there, Paul writes in those verses, he writes that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so in light of Jesus's obedience all the way to death, Paul then writes in verse 12, therefore, in light of that, therefore, and his controlling verb for this whole section is this idea, even that Ben spoke about this morning to lead us in worship, it's this verb, obey. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more my absence. Now, the problem is, Paul doesn't tell us what to obey. In the coming verses, he doesn't give us a list of things to obey. There are no Ten Commandments that he writes out out here. There's no two commandments that he writes. He just tells us to obey, which leads to the question of obey what and to what degree and when and how. It, he doesn't answer the what. He just tells us to do something. And so really, the way I see this is it's in light of what he's just wrote about, about Christ's obedience, his willingness to self empty, to give of himself to others. Paul's saying, in light of that, I want you to obey. Now, he works this out a little bit. He says, here's what I want you to do. Continue, he says, here's the next thing. The closest thing that we can get to an answer on what am I supposed to obey is the last part of verse 12. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this phrase I want to work out with you for a minute. Because what we read about, what we see there is this, all right? We see work out your salvation. This has become a very confusing um, phrase. And depending upon what culture you're in, it's understood differently. Because some people, even though the, the language of the text, what Paul is writing is this, work out. Some people think what he really means is work not out, but work for your salvation. That's how some will interpret this. In practicality, some will will marry their idea of obedience to their favor before God. And the more righteous we are, the more God will be sure to grant me salvation. Because I'm not sure, as some might believe, I'm not sure that I'm good enough for salvation, but here I'm charged to, to work toward salvation. I would argue that's not at all what Paul is saying. His assumption is that you have already received salvation. 
And now you're just working it out, working out of that position. In other words, if I can put it this way, this is how saved people work out what they already have. They work out their salvation. This is critical. Don't miss this, because this is a key point of what I'm going to try to distinguish this morning in our faith. There's a huge difference between working out and working for. I'm going to try to flesh that out in the text. A huge difference. This is about how saved people settle into what they're already saved from and out of their salvation, which is granted by grace through faith alone, they work out from that into the world. Their behavior then becomes the working out of. The way that they engage the people and moments around them becomes the way that their truth of salvation works out, but it doesn't create or guarantee their salvation. This is how saved people work it out. Now, he clarifies this further, and he puts it this way, work it out with fear and trembling, with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean, with fear and trembling? How does that work? If I'm on the beach in Hawaii, I probably want to get off it because I don't prefer the beach, but if I were there, and the tsunami um, sirens go off, I'm going to feel afraid. If I'm in a skyscraper on the 64th floor and I recognize we're in the middle now of an earthquake, I'm going to feel fear. If I'm skiing, none of these things I do, by the way. Anyway, if I'm skiing down the slopes and I look up behind me and I see an avalanche begin to start, what do you think I'm going to feel, right? I'm going to feel afraid for my life. Why? Because each of those things, each of those things, whether it's a tsunami, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's an avalanche, they have much greater power than I do. And so I am, and I think you should be rightly afraid because that fear drives me to appropriate action. It's a recognition that the thing is more powerful than me. This is a recognition. This isn't, by the way, fear that you get when you watch a horror movie, all right? Some psychopathic producer creates a horror movie and you're like wondering now when I turn the lights off, you know, the chainsaw massacre dude's going to come through and, you know, kill us all. And, and uh, you know, that's a different kind of fear that isn't what's at stake here. This isn't a let's cower in the corner because I'm just afraid of what God is going to do. This is picking up the idea of I'm in a moment where there might be power greater than me. In fact, there is. There's a God who's turned water into wine. There's a God who's raised people from the dead. There's a God who told the oceans where to stop. There's a God who told the sun when to rise. There's a God who told these chromosomes, this DNA, how to be put together. There is a God way more powerful than me. And because of that, I have a quote-unquote fear, a healthy respect that, my goodness, this God, this God, he's in charge. Therefore, I'm willing to work out my salvation so that if I'm being asked to forgive you when I don't feel like it, if I'm being asked not to be anxious when I prefer to be, if I'm being asked to give of my strength when I've already had a long day to help my family, I have to recognize in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Jesus became obedient even to death on a cross. And so if God is willing to empty himself to that point, and I am being asked by God who has more power than me to do that same thing, this is where Paul is tapping into, saying, with fear and trembling, remember the God who is way more powerful 
than any of us could ever imagine, has done the very thing that he's going to ask you to do, to continue over and over and over with self-emptying obedience, to give of yourself in love to the people around you with overwhelming regularity. And you're not going to want to, and I'm not going to want to. But the beauty of this is that we work this out with fear and trembling, meaning we look and say, God is asking me to do this. And then he says, he works it out with fear and trembling. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is the one who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This assumes a couple of things. One, this assumes that your salvation is not just for your eternal benefit personally. That if and when you come to faith in Christ, the goal isn't, you are now in. Like, congratulations, you're done. You're safe. Forget everybody else. You're good to go, and I'm secure. Boom, and I'm done. Now, there are people who kind of live that way. This, this, this assumes that is not true. That God is going to will, he wants to will in you to, to, to move and to act according to his good purpose. Another word for purpose, and it's translated in some of your Bibles this way, is pleasure, according to his good pleasure. It's a picture of a God with incredible power who wants to move in your will and in your action, to move in your will and your action, to move you through the world and to move me through the world that will bring him pleasure and bring him delight so that people will see these little people like us who are followers of an incredibly powerful God doing things that are ridiculously self-emptying in obedience to a God who did the very same things. Why in the world do you have so much forgiveness in you? Why in the world do you have so much grace and mercy in you? Why in the world can you delay judgment and condemnation for a minute? What is different about you? to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And here's what I would, I'd say, and I was writing this down in my notes. I'm like, this rhymes, so I need to tell people this. They don't often come up with something that rhymes, all right? Here's what that means for me. That the day-to-day -day is not a throwaway, all right? There it is. That's as good as it gets from me on rhyming. This is what I mean. Your faith and my faith is not theoretical. It's not that we can someday forgive in theory. What it means is as you're changing diapers, as you're having your sleepless nights, as you just broke up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, as you're not sure what you're doing in your future, if you didn't make the team, if things aren't going well in business, if you're not sure what's happening with your parents or your dad or your mom, if you're dealing with it, it's in the middle of those things that God wants to will and to act, wants you to will and to act according to his good purpose and pleasure. That what you experience is indeed the laboratory, the way, the place for you to behave, for me to behave, so that people in the room that we're in will come to see a powerful God, a powerful God, who moves us and changes us to act according to his good pleasure, to his good will. Now, we go on. Because it'd be easier, I would say, be easier if it were theoretical. If Sunday morning was, was it. If all I had to do was come to church, sing loud songs. Um, let, me, let me back that up. Sing songs loudly. I uh, know there's always a debate on how loud things should be in the sanctuary, right? And we can, we can have a little smile and breathe about that for a minute, okay? 
I mean, sorry, I, I mean that we can, like, is, is, the, the, is, it, is all there is, is like, let's just engage fully in worship, and, and let's have a great message, and let's walk out feeling charged. That's a part of it, and we don't want to, like, pull away from that, but what's more to it, what's more to it is that we have to live this out in the day-to-day, and when we walk with each other in the hallways and the byways of life, we run into each other. We run into each other all the time. I bother you sometimes. right? Nobody shake their head yes. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. The way I think, my personality, my style, sometimes it's wonderful, sometimes it's really not. I know that. We do this to one another all the time. And this is why I think Paul writes the next thing that he comes up with in verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. This is what he wants. In the middle of trying to walk out your obedience to Christ, be careful, he's saying, don't trip over this. Don't get into being people who grumble and argue because it will be easy to do that. Because faith is worked out in the middle of the mess of life, that is where the grumbling and arguing happens. Years ago, um, Jen and I went on a family vacation with our kids to somewhere, uh, Tennessee, I think. Anyhow, when we were down there, we stayed at a, a place, and they said, if you come to our buy the condo sales pitch, right? We'll give you X number of dollars off your thing, right? I'm like, I hate doing those, but that's a good amount of money off, so I'll go sit through this thing. After 30 minutes, we're like, we're done. We don't want to buy your condo for $45,000 every six months. You know, we're just not interested in that. Well, it took me like a full hour plus to get out of that because they kept arguing. They kept arguing. This wasn't even salesing, whatever. You know, this is arguing. To this day, I still have a terrible taste in my mouth about that company and that brand. I don't even want to be a part of it. I'm like, let me out of your office. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm done with it. Why? Because arguing, and you know this, grumbling and arguing, it is so unappealing. It is so unappealing. And so when Christians argue and Christians grumble, it is equally unappealing. When I argue. When I grumble, it is equally unappealing. And you and I both live in the same world. It is polarized like we have never experienced it before. And it's easy. It's easy to fight about all kinds of things. And Paul says, warning, as you work this out, be careful. Don't turn into people who are grumbling and arguing. He goes on, why should I not do that? Verse 15, so that we may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. This is so powerful. He's saying, I want you to not grumble and argue. I want you to be people who don't don't get stuck on the smaller things. I want you to get on with it. I want you to get on with it. And the motivation for that is that this, so you can become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and depraved and crooked generation. You'll shine like stars in the skies. You hold firmly to the word of life. The way I see this, the way I see this, if I can um, uh, put it this way, and I'm going to change the word behavior. I've been talking this morning about behavior. Uh, a synonym for Christian behavior in my mind is morality. We often use that word. Like, how moral are you? What is, what is your moral preference, your moral basis? Morality often is understood to be the way we act out our behavior. 
When I read this section uh, of Philippians, here's what, what I think, that our morality matters, but it matters only in as much as it points to the hope and power of Christ. Our morality matters, but it only matters in as much as it points to the hope and power of Christ. And here's why I say that, and here's why this is important. Look at the text again with me. He says, if you do these things, you'll become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. This phrasing, word of life, um, I would argue it doesn't mean your Bible. It doesn't mean your Bible. We use the word word to describe our Bibles today. The Bible as we have it now was not yet completed and certainly wasn't even collected at the time that Paul is writing. And so when he's writing, there's no way that he means, because he can't even picture yet, a completed Bible the way we have it today. Another word used for Jesus in the scriptures is word. In the word was the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. Even as far back as the Proverbs, we could argue that the word word is used to describe Jesus as the second member of the Godhead. I think what Paul is saying here is what you're going to do as you work out your salvation, you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I don't think that's the Bible. I think that's as you're holding firmly to what is another commonly used term for word, that is Jesus, who gives life. That makes the most sense to me because in context, he just asked us to self-empty like Jesus did, to become obedient like Jesus was. So here's my point that our morality, it doesn't matter for us, it matters for Jesus, all right? Now, in, in a more conservative environment, here's how this works. The danger is that when we um, create a line of morality, it can be for us or it can be for Christ. For example, many hold the line, and I would support it, that sex is best saved for marriage, that premarital sex is something that Christians would look down on. Now, not all Christians would say that. Most in our community, including me, would argue for that point. Why? Why? If righteousness and morality is about me, the why is this. Because if I have sex before I'm married, then my social circle will kick me out. My church will look down on me with shame. And I won't have the opportunity or privileges that someone who is, saves himself for marriage will have. That's making it, truthfully, about me and my righteousness. My parents might look down on me. My aunt and uncle might. If morality is about Christ, here's where premarital sex fits in. My morality is framed to say the reason, the reason that Christians want to wait until marriage to have sex is because the way that God relates to his people throughout the entire Bible is through covenants. The Abrahamic, Mosaic, the Davidic covenant, even the new covenant. A covenant relationship with God and his people is a, is a relationship of full commitment to one another. And marriage is a covenant of full commitment to one another. And sex is a commitment of fullness to one another. And to have that, that relationship with someone outside the bonds of a covenant, it's not just unwise or unhealthy. It also doesn't give us the hope and life of what Jesus even created this to be. And so if you want to have the most beautiful, fulfilling, awesome experience with other people, have sex in the context of a covenant relationship. That points to Christ in the way that he has created and made us. So my morality 
isn't so that I can stay in my friend circle or I can avoid shame of my peers. My morality points to the power of Christ. Why do I think we all shouldn't get drunk? Not because, not because getting drunk will be embarrassing or I might lose my job if I did that. Why? Because if I'm drunk, if I'm drunk, I do not have the capacity. I cannot, I cannot, I can no longer have my will or my actions carry out the good work of Christ. I cannot carry out the fruit of the Spirit when I don't have my right mind. Work ethic. Why should we work hard? If it's about me, if it's about me, it's so that I can kind of get ahead. I want to earn the respect of the people around me. And my behavior or my morality will be about distinguishing me from others. For a Christian, morality that points to Christ. I work hard so that I can organize or structure the world around me for the benefit of others. So if I work hard in my business, it's so that I can help this community rise up. I can provide jobs and opportunities for people. I get up and work hard so that I can serve out of my strength, my family, and they can benefit from it. Why? Because this is exactly what Christ did when he emptied himself on the cross. And so the reason I work hard is not so that I can point to me, and I can point to the law, but I can point to Christ because in his fullness, he creates a place where sex and marriage and a covenant relationship is beautiful and the most awesome thing you can experience. He creates a place where you can enjoy pleasure and freedom and fun. He creates a place where work means something. So my morality makes sense, but it only makes sense in as much as it points to the hope and power of Christ. So at its best, a Christian's behavior reflects Jesus, not the law. At its best, a Christian's behavior reflects Jesus and not the law. The goal isn't just to reflect the law. That, that is so life-sucking. If all you do is, I'm not gonna have sex as my parents said I shouldn't, and I'm not gonna get drunk because you know my, my grandpa would be upset with that, and, and all you're doing is living under the law. And for a, re, for a little bit, the law can keep us in control. I'm not ready to get rid of the law. It can keep us kind of in some healthy guardrails. But if you never get underneath that, if you never go further than that, then you're never going to experience the life of Christ, the joy and freedom in that. And so at its best, a Christian's behavior reflects Jesus, not just, not just the law. As you hold forth the word of life, we hold forth the word of life. Now, let me continue and finish up before I get too carried away with that. All right, verse 17, he wraps up, and I'm going to be really brief here. He wraps up in verses 17 and 18. He says, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. What's he saying? Being poured out like a drink offering means even if I die, all right? Because a, a drink offering, that's the end of it. It's the, the image of sacrificial work. So he's in prison. He's saying, even if I'm going to die, what I'm going to remember, what's going to hit me is the sacrifice and service of your faith. And I'm going to be joyful and glad that you continue to sacrifice and serve. That's going to bring me joy. And I hope that it'll bring you joy too, that I'm willing to do that even to the death. And so what can we say as we wrap this up? A couple things. And this is kind of a wordy statement. I'm not sure how to bring it down, but here we go. As I think about how to summarize all this, here's the way I try to summarize it. You can make it better and tell me about it later, and then I'll wish I would have said it differently. Here we go. As I think about all of this, 
I think this, that respectful obedience to God positions our morality to highlight Christ and not ourselves. Like, what? Continue to work out your salvation, Paul says, with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. It's this idea of respect. The first word, respectful. When I think about God, I remember the power that he has. I no longer get to choose on my own. Like, I can choose, right? I can choose. I can choose not to forgive you. I can choose not to be gracious to you. I can choose not to serve you. I can. But, 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 if I pause for a minute and ask, who is the most powerful one in the room? If I can get myself under the fact that God, the most powerful one, has not just told me to do this, but he's modeled it. This drives my obedience out of fear and trembling to say this is the most powerful place, most powerful person that I can conceive of who's modeling and asking me to obey to the point of death. So respectful obedience to God positions my behavior or morality to highlight Christ and not ourselves. And here's why that's important. Because the law, the law will only serve to condemn you. It can never serve to save you. The law is not nearly as powerful as Christ. The law will only lead you to death and it will stop you right there. Which is why some of you have seen family members or maybe yourself, you're close to walking away from the faith. Why? Because the law never fulfills you. And so morality on its own points to the law. This is what you should obey. This is how you should do it. This is, this is it. If that's where it stops, it will never lead you to life. It never leads you to real power. Respectful obedience to God positions our morality not to highlight the law. That's too easy. That's too simple. It pushes it further and says, we don't, we don't obey just because our parents said so or just because I have 10 commandments or just because of a law. I don't obey just because of that. I obey because Christ did. He died. He became obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, I want the pleasure of God to work in and through me that as I act in my rooms that I act in, that the pleasure of God can be seen by all the people around me. Now, with that being said, in my experience, confession and repentance are both more honest and more inviting than chasing moral perfection. In my experience, confession and repentance are both more honest and inviting than chasing moral perfection. Moral perfection is going to be that voice in your head that says, you haven't done enough. When you fail and screw up, your shame needs to be remedied by greater discipline and harder work. And don't tell anybody where you messed up, because then they'll all think poorly of you. Just keep trying harder and keep all the stuff that's in the dark in the dark and manage that stuff over there but just keep trying this. In my experience, confession and repentance are both more honest and more inviting than ever chasing moral perfection. All we're doing is chasing the law, and the law will only ever condemn you. You will never do enough. You will never get over that habit on your own and be perfect with it. You will never do that. Confession and repentance is the way that we die to that and allow the life of Christ in. That's my experience. I do not encourage you to chase a level of moral perfection. That's a chasing after something that will ultimately ruin you. But I do encourage us to consider the role of confession and repentance. With that being said, two last questions and then I'm going to be done. Something else to consider as we think about our own experiences. Are there any places to think about my own experience in the world where I lean toward grumbling or arguing? You may want to ask your spouse this or you may not. That's up to you. You may want to ask a friend this, or you may not. That's up to you. 
But if you happen to be a human being, it is an easy tendency as we stroll into the rooms that we stroll into, it is easy to grumble and it's easy to argue. And it's the one thing Paul highlights in here. He says, watch out for this one. It's a stone in all of our shoes. Be careful. Because that is not inviting and that doesn't reflect Christ well. It is a human problem. And so we confess, we repent, we ask for forgiveness, we move forward. Just be aware of that. And finally, I'll finish up with this. Am I working out my salvation or working for it? Because Paul says, hey, work it out. Work out your salvation. But don't work for it. Please don't work for it. Because chasing moral perfection, chasing the law, it's going to kill you. That's what the law is designed to do. It's designed to lead you right up to death and say, yep, I died. I can't meet the standard, can't do it. That's what it does. When I work out my salvation, I allow my family, the people around me in my neighborhoods, people in my room, so to speak, to see my behavior and morality, but to see Christ beyond it. It doesn't just point to me, it points beyond to the one who gives life and who himself became obedient, even to death, to death on a cross. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thanks for the chance we have to be together this morning and to get into this text of Scripture. Um, I pray that you would help us as we think about how we behave, just how we act in the world that we're in with our friends and with our family. There are probably some of us who are just doing things as our parents said we had to because that's what our job requires or that's what we think our church requires. And we haven't really looked beyond the law to see the beauty of Christ, to see, to see the invitation to life. So I pray that you would help us as we walk with our friends, our classmates, our peers, our family members. I pray that you would help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, keeping in mind that Christ became obedient all the way to death, that we may give of ourselves to the same point of death, that as we work with one another, interact with each other, that your good pleasure can be experienced through each of our lives. I pray that you'd move us to confession and repentance more than perfection, because that only chases the law and death. Thank you for your kindness and favor in us, and I pray you'd give us courage and wisdom to work out, but not work for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.